0: Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, November 10th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Melissa
1: Topscher with today's top headlines. The U.S. midterms remain too close to call.
0: Trump warns DeSantis against running for president.
1: Russia may be giving up on Kherson.
0: Congo jets bomb M23 rebels.
1: An Iranian fuel convoy is attacked on the Syria-Iraq border.
0: The U.K. military reportedly killed at least 64 Afghan children.
1: A cyber extortionist leaks Australian medical records.
0: Brittany Griner is moved to a Russian penal colony.
1: Microsoft faces an antitrust complaint in Europe.
0: And China ponders a climate compensation mechanism.
1: Our first story highlights key takeaways from the U.S. midterm elections. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Associated Press, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and Syracuse.com. Americans headed to the polls on Tuesday to decide the makeup of Congress in a heated election season, with Democrats warning of an alleged threat to American democracy by Republicans, while Republicans focused on the economy and crime. As of late Wednesday afternoon, Republicans are leading Democrats in the House 206. To 177, with 218 seats needed to win the majority. The Senate is still too close to call, with Republicans currently holding 49 seats and the Democrats 48. The Pennsylvania U.S. Senate race, which saw celebrity television physician Mehmet Oz face off against Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, is being called a victory for Democrat Fetterman by multiple outlets. Democrat Josh Shapiro also managed to win the governor's race. In the closest New York governor's race since 1994, Republican Lee Zeldin, who tightened the race to within single digits ahead of Election Day, conceded to Democrat incumbent Kathy Hochul. Hochul is the first woman to be elected governor of the state. In heavily contested Ohio, Republican J.D. Vance is projected to have beaten Tim Ryan, with Wisconsin Republican Ron Johnson also projected to have won his race. Meanwhile, Ron DeSantis has beaten Charlie Crist in Florida's governor race. Senate races in Georgia and Nevada are still a toss-up, with Georgia's incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker heading to a runoff. As of right now, it looks as though Democrats haven't done as poorly as some projections anticipated. However, Republicans could still take slim majorities in either the House or Senate or even both.
0: Thank you, Melissa, for laying out the facts on those election-term stories. On this show, we separate the facts from the narrative spin. And now we've got a Republican narrative spin, and it's provided by Town Hall. Given the current inflation and violent crime crisis, Republicans should have done better. But that doesn't mean there weren't bright spots. One of these was the landslide re-election of Ron DeSantis and Florida's showcasing of how to run a smooth election. Whether they end up with a majority in either chamber or not, the GOP now has two years to take notes and figure out their 2024 game plan.
1: And CNN provides the Democratic narrative. What DeSantis's win shows is that many Republicans throughout the country are still trying and failing to run their campaigns like Donald Trump. Election deniers like Doug Mastriano took huge defeats, and -and up-and-coming progressives like John Fetterman had big wins, showing voters care far more about protecting democracy than the MAGA crowd thought.
0: Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. And continuing with political news, Donald Trump is warning DeSantis against running in 2024 for the presidential bid. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, Fox 5 Atlanta, Fox News, and Politico. Speaking to Fox News, former U.S. President Donald Trump warned Ron DeSantis against running for president in 2024, just hours before the incumbent Florida governor secured his placement in a landslide victory in the U.S. midterms on Tuesday. Despite Trump, a Florida resident, voting for DeSantis, the former president claimed that he would reveal things about DeSantis that, quote, won't be very flattering, and that if they ran against each other, he would, quote, beat him like I would beat everyone else. Trump had revealed at a rally in Dayton, Ohio, that he had a major announcement on November 15th, which many expect to be the launch of his third presidential run. While Trump stated DeSantis was a, quote, fine guy in his Fox News interview, he also claimed that if he ran, quote, he would hurt himself badly. Trump's warnings follow his comments at a rally in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, this past weekend, where he referred to the Florida governor as Ron DeSanctimonious as he claimed he was winning big in the Republican Party's nomination polling. DeSantis defeated Democrat gubernatorial candidate Charlie Crist on Tuesday by nearly a 20% margin with 59% of the vote.
1: Thank you, Adam, for laying out the facts on that story. We've got several narrative spins, as should be expected. The Democratic narrative comes from the Daily Kos. In a cheap, albeit unsurprising, move, Trump is attacking anyone who was a potential threat, even if it means turning on one of his own. His warning shots to DeSantis only further polarize him from his own party and show that he's become nervous over his potential 2024 candidacy rival. This self-sabotage could very well compromise the two leaders' 2024 campaign trail and lead to a blue wave.
0: And of course, if there's a Democratic narrative, it's going to be followed by a Republican narrative, and this one's provided by Fox News. In a largely disappointing evening for Republicans, Trump's lack of success has made it crystal clear that the 45th president no longer holds favor with the GOP. Although not a total bust, many now see DeSantis as the new de facto Republican leader as they look to reassess toward 2024.
1: And there's a pro-Trump narrative on this story from KATV Channel 7. The narrative that DeSantis now leads the Republican Party is nonsense. While the Florida governor would be a good potential presidential candidate, Trump still stands tall, and his support has only grown.
0: And Melissa, we also have nerd narrative on this story. The folks at Bataculous think there's a 30% chance that Ron DeSantis will become U.S. president by 2029.
1: This sounds a little mobster to me.
0: <laughs> you know what this really reminds me is of when I was a kid. I used to watch uh, that World Wrestling Federation. This is like a one of the little talk ups before the the wrestling match. Oh, I'm gonna hurt him badly. Oh, he well, he's gonna be flattened. Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna win big. Oh, he's gonna hurt him. I'm gonna hurt him really bad. I tell you.
1: Um, I'm not scared. I'm gonna beat him like I'd beat everyone else.
0: That's right. I'm gonna beat. Gonna beat him like a dog.
1: He's just worried because someone, someone young and fresh is nipping at his heels. Bring him on, Mean Gene! We turn to the conflict in Ukraine on Day 259, where fighting intensifies in Kherson and a grain deal is in question. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, Ukraine Form, the Associated Press, and Pravda. According to multiple reports on Wednesday, fighting has intensified in the southern region of Kherson. Kirill Stremusov, the Russian-appointed deputy governor of Kherson, said Ukrainian attacks came in quite large columns, in three directions, and alleged that several hundred advancing troops were killed. Stremusov was later reportedly killed in an unrelated car crash on Wednesday. According to a Ukrainian military account from Operational Command South, Russia lost 55 soldiers, four tanks, and a number of other weapons in Ukrainian strikes. Kiev also claimed to have destroyed two ammunition depots. Neither Russian nor Ukrainian reports of military losses could be independently confirmed. According to Russian state media, Russian forces have been ordered to withdraw from the west bank of the Dnipro River in Kherson. Ukrainian officials further reported that one civilian was killed and one more injured in Russian attacks in Ukrainian-held parts of Kherson. In addition, a Russian attack was reported in the city of Dnipro in Dnipropetrovsk, where drones targeted the warehouses of a logistics business setting off a large fire. Four injured employees were taken to hospital, and three remain in critical condition, according to local officials. Nikopol and Marhanets in Dnipropetrovsk were also subject to attacks. There were no reports of civilian casualties at this stage. Heavy fighting also continued in the Donetsk region, namely near Bakhmut, Adivka, and Vulodar. Ukrainian officials reported that three civilians were killed and 11 were injured in Russian attacks, adding that the bodies of three civilians who'd been killed earlier were also discovered. Officials from the Donetsk People's Republic reported that two civilians were killed and two others were injured in Ukrainian attacks. Meanwhile, although Russia has returned to the grain deal brokered by Turkey and the UN, the agreement's future remains in question, as Russian officials have continued to criticize the deal's implementation so far. Andrei Rudenko, Russia's deputy foreign minister, said, We are very dissatisfied with how the Russian part is being implemented. The deal is set to expire on November 18th, but many nations are hopeful that it will be renewed. Elsewhere, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky on Tuesday sent Ukraine's parliament, the Verkhovna Rada, two draft laws to extend the deadlines of mobilization and martial law. Member of Parliament Yaroslav Zeliznyak told Ukrainian media that bills would be approved at the next plenary session and that the measures would likely be extended to February 19, 2023.
0: Melissa, thank you for the update on the situation in Ukraine. We've got a few narrative spins on this. The first is a pro-establishment narrative, and it's provided by Japan Forward. Russia is weaponizing food insecurity at a cost to innocent people in Africa and the Middle East. This is an inhumane violation of human rights that is utterly unacceptable on the world stage. The West must do something about how easily the Kremlin can unilaterally break treaties.
1: And there's a pro-Russia narrative from TASS. It is Western nations that are undermining this agreement. Russia, a key global supplier of fertilizer and other foodstuffs, hasn't seen sufficient evidence of progress in implementing the Russian parts of the deal, namely the easing of sanctions on Russian food exports. Why should it return to the deal if its terms aren't being fairly implemented?
0: And the nerds of Metaculus have something to say on this story. There's a 50% chance that Ukraine will regain control of Herson by January eleventh, 2023. In our next story, jets from the Democratic Republic of Congo have bombed M-23 rebels. And here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC. France 24, Reuters, Africa, Africa Report, and the East African. Fighter jets from the Democratic Republic of Congo, or the DRC, began bombing rebel positions on Tuesday, stepping up the fight against the March 23 movement, or M23, rebel group, which recently made meaningful territorial gains in the country's war-torn eastern region. Suhoi-25 fighter jets reportedly attacked the rebel-held Chansu area of North Kivu after the M-23 captured settlements along a key highway in Goma. The M-23 claimed that the DRC government had shelled heavily populated areas and accused Kinshasa of undermining negotiation talks. On Saturday, the DRC and Rwanda resumed talks in Angola that originally began in July to resolve rising tensions between the two governments over M-23 attacks in eastern Congo. Meanwhile, the Congolese army announced a general mobilization, saying it had begun training some 2,000 recruits in Goma after the M-23 launched a new offensive and captured large swaths of new territory. Kinshasa accuses Kigali of backing the M-23 and its recent offensive, which led the local UN peacekeeping mission, MONUSCO, to raise its troop alert level. Earlier in August, a UN report found that Kigali had directly supported the M-23, the currently most prominent of the numerous armed groups contributing to the region's destabilization. The M-23, composed mainly of Congolese Tutsis, First emerged in 2012, but was pushed back by the government and UN forces. It resumed fighting in late 2021, claiming that Kinshasa had failed to honor a demobilization agreement that included integrating its fighters into the Congolese army.
1: Those are the facts, and here are three spins on the matter. The pro establishment narrative comes from Bloomberg. Ten years ago, Rwanda attempted to invade the DRC using the M23, and now they're trying again. That Kinshasa is using proxies to fight the M23 and retaliate against Rwanda is an unproven claim by Kigali to deflect attention from its responsibility for the violence in eastern Congo exposed by the UN. Kigali's destabilization of the region is about plundering the resources of eastern Congo and strengthening its position of power.
0: And New Times provides us with an establishment critical narrative. It's evident that by expelling the Rwandan ambassador and making baseless accusations of Rwandan backing for the M23, Kinshasa is only trying to distract attention from its inability to pacify the eastern DRC. Kinshasa and the biased Manusco act as if there weren't well over 100 rebel groups other than M23. To achieve peace, Kinshasa must first acknowledge its responsibility for violence and displacement.
1: And there's a cynical narrative on this story from all Africa. Since the UN has maintained a peacekeeping mission in eastern Congo for more than 20 years, but has made no significant contributions to pacification, the question arises as to what interest the UN is serving in the exceptionally mineral-rich region. Distrust is heightened by the West's tacit support for Kigali and the British refugee deal with Rwanda, in a post-colonial world, the so-called international community should finally begin to take the region's distrust of blue helmets seriously. An Iranian fuel convoy is attacked on the Syria-Iraq border. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, I-24 News, The Washington Post, All Monitor, ABC, and Naharnet. An unidentified drone strike was reportedly conducted on an Iranian fuel convoy on Tuesday on the Syrian side of the Syria-Iraq border. Iraqi officials claimed that the convoy consisted of more than 20 tanker trucks, of which at least two were destroyed after entering the Qaim border crossing into Syria. According to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, at least 15 people were killed in the strike, most of them belonging to Iranian-backed militias. Iranian media outlets claimed that the fuel was destined for Lebanon, but Syrian opposition media reported that targeted trucks also contained weapons. It wasn't immediately clear who was behind the strikes, with Iran's state television accusing the U.S. without offering any evidence. Israel and the U.S. have targeted the area in the past, but the U.S. military denied responsibility, and the Israeli army refused to comment. Though Israel generally doesn't comment on its military action in Syria, it has confirmed that it has carried out hundreds of strikes in the country, targeting both government positions and Iran-backed forces since the onset of the Syrian civil war. Tit-for-tat attacks have been going on in recent years in Syria's eastern province of Deir Zor as Iranian-backed militias strengthen their presence, while both Israel and the U.S. conduct military operations. Iran has sent thousands of fighters to help Syrian troops during the country's decade long civil war, backing President Bashar al Assad. Both Tehran and Damascus are also allied with Lebanon based Hezbollah, which denied involvement with the convoy.
0: Thank you, Melissa. Times of Israel has an anti Iran narrative. Israel has been quite clear that it will not permit Iran to freely move weapons and fighters through Syria if it threatens Israeli security. If endangered, Israel will target Iranian assets in all of the countries into which Iran has dug its tentacles. Iran will continue to see strikes like this one if its aggression continues.
1: And here's the pro-Iran spin from Press TV. As Iran tries to provide much-needed fuel to crisis-stricken Lebanon, the U.S. shamelessly attacks its convoys. The Lebanese people are living in absolute desperation as oil prices continue to rise in a country suffering under extreme economic conditions. Unfortunately for Lebanon, U.S. hegemony will never allow one of its geopolitical adversaries to provide aid to suffering civilians.
0: Our next story is a report that the UK military has killed at least 64 Afghan children. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by ITV, ABC, Newsbud, Yahoo, Al Jazeera, and Action on Armed Violence. The British Army paid compensation to the relatives of 64 children killed over nine years of military action in Afghanistan, according to the publication of a new investigation on Wednesday. Action on Armed Violence, or AOAV, a London-based advocacy and research group, reportedly discovered the information through Freedom of Information requests. The figure is four times higher than UK forces had previously acknowledged. According to the analysis, between 2006 and 2014, the Army compensated for 38 incidents involving 64 confirmed child fatalities. A one-year-old boy was reportedly the youngest recorded child killed. The total figure of under-18s killed could be significantly higher as documents from the Ministry of Defense, or MOD, listed 135 fatalities in the period, often without detailing their age of circumstances around their death. Among the most common causes of death were airstrikes and being caught in the crossfire. AOAV's research also revealed that the average compensation for each person killed was $1,894, or 1,656 pounds. The total amount paid, including for adult deaths, between 2006 and 2014, was $165,332, or £144,593, though the majority of the 881 claims brought to the Allied Commander operations in those years were rejected. In response to the investigation, an MOD spokesperson has said, quote, any civilian death during conflict is a tragedy, more so when children and family members are involved. The U.K. Armed Forces works hard to minimize that risk, which regrettably can never be entirely eliminated.
1: Adam, thank you for the facts on that somber story. We've got a few narratives. Narrative A comes from the Middle East Monitor. These revelations should give pause for thought. Modern war will always bring civilian casualties, but this report sheds light on the often forgotten child fatalities and sends a warning to Westminster politicians about the realities of conflict.
0: And Narrative B is provided by BBC News. It's not enough to only avoid conflict. There also needs to be more transparency and accountability in investigating these types of incidents. In contrast to the UK, US Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin recently ordered a major review of how the Pentagon investigates civilian casualties. Britain must follow this example and direct more resources toward the mitigation of harm to civilians.
1: Moving down under for our next story, a cyber extortionist leaks Australians' medical records. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, BBC News, Security Week, Reuters, Radio Free International and France 24. On Wednesday, hackers began leaking sensitive medical records stolen from Medibank, an Australian health insurer, with nearly 10 million customers after the firm refused to pay a ransom. The company said that a sample from the stolen data had been leaked on the dark web forum linked to the Russian ransomware group Reveal, consisting of hundreds of leaks of personal information, including names, addresses, and government identification. The insurance company said it expected more customer data to be released. The leaked information divided people into two categories, a naughty list and a nice list. Some on the naughty list had codes that seemed to tie them to drug addiction, alcohol use, and HIV. Australian firms have recently suffered a string of data breaches. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said the government is working with investigators on the cyber attacks, stating, This is really tough for people. I'm a Metabank private customer as well, and it will be of concern that some of this information has been put out there. After Metabank had refused to pay an undisclosed ransom, the hackers followed through on their threat to publish the stolen data. The company told customers, Based on the extensive advice we have received from cybercrime experts, We believe there is only a limited chance paying a ransom would ensure the return of our customers' data and prevent it from being published. The security incident has erased hundreds of millions of dollars from Metabank's market value. The company's share price plummeted over 20% since last month when the news of the leak first appeared.
0: Thank you, Melissa. On the facts of this frightening story, the pro-establishment narrative spin on this is provided by Guardian. Unfortunately, this is the new world that we live in. The Metabank breach is a huge wake up call that shows the need for an overhaul of information and privacy protection. From here on in, companies must be aware that they're under relentless cyber attack. Australia's institutions are generally well prepared, but can do even more to safeguard classified information.
1: And an establishment critical narrative comes from crayon data. Cybersecurity isn't taken seriously enough in either the public or private sector. Most business leaders believe that their enterprises are safe from harm, but the truth is far less comforting. In a 2021 study, a staggering 63% of businesses said they had experienced the cyber attack. The hidden cost isn't the value of the stolen information, but losing the customer's trust and the impact that may have on the attacked company's share value.
0: There's also a nerd narrative on this story. There's a 41 percent chance the U.S. executive branch will attempt to ban or otherwise further limit ransomware payments in 2022. And that's according to the Metaculous prediction community. Yeah, this uh, cyber ransoms are like a real deal. Oh, yeah. And they're, yeah, they're
1: I guess that's a private insurer, but it's, you know, I know they've been in, historically targeting a lot of like city governments and uh, bureaucracies, at least in the states where. You know, the technology uh, knowledge is not so cutting edge.
0: They do it to hospitals too. Yeah, I've I've heard reports of right, they'll 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 totally hold up a all of their data.
1: Yeah, and companies are just kind of building it into their budget now. It's.
0: I know if it ever happened to me, I'd be screwed because I don't remember any of my phone numbers. Oh, they got on my contact. They'd be like, Yeah, we're gonna hold you. I'm like, No, no, how am I gonna call my mom? <laughs> I only know my own phone number, and even that's barely in my mind. <laughs> I don't ever call myself.
1: Sign of the times.
0: In our next story, Brittany Greiner has been moved to a Russian penal colony. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Guardian, NBC, and New York Post. U.S. basketball star Brittany Greiner has been moved to a Russian penal colony to serve her sentence for drug possession and smuggling, her legal team reported on Wednesday. Greiner was arrested at a Moscow airport on February 17th, a week before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, after she was found with vape cartridges containing cannabis oil. She subsequently pleaded guilty and was sentenced to nine years' imprisonment on August 4th. After a hearing last month, judges rejected Greiner's appeal. The U.S. officials consider her nine-year sentence as unlawful detention. Greiner's legal team said she left the detention center in Moscow on November 4th and was being transported to an unspecified colony. They added they didn't know her exact whereabouts or exactly where she was being taken, but they expected to be informed along with the U.S. Embassy when she reaches her final destination. On Wednesday, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said in a statement every minute that Brittany Griner must endure wrongful detention in Russia is a minute too long. The statement also noted that the administration is working tirelessly for her release. Previously this year, the U.S. proposed to swap Russian arms dealer Victor Bout for Griner and former U.S. contractor Paul Whelan, an American sentenced to 16 years in Russia for espionage. U.S. officials are reportedly continuing to follow up on the offer.
1: Thank you for this terrifying story, Adam. The anti-Russia narrative out of this story comes from CNN. Regardless of how Russia wants to classify its holding of Greiner, the U.S. has made persistent advances to try to secure her release, but there has been no cooperation from Moscow. Russia should stop playing games and negotiate for her and Weyland's
0: release. And the pro-Russia narrative is provided by RT. Russia has no use for theatrics from the U.S. and would only negotiate in a quiet setting out of the public eye. Nonetheless, Greiner isn't wrongfully held. She's incarcerated because she violated Russian law, and the punishment fits the crime.
1: In our next story, Microsoft faces an antitrust complaint in Europe. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Wall Street Journal, U.S. News, you Active, And Newsbud. On Wednesday, the European industry group Cloud Infrastructure Service Providers, or CISPE, filed a complaint against Microsoft over its cloud computing practices with the European Commission. CISPE, which features Amazon as a member, alleges that Microsoft uses its dominance in productivity software to direct customers in Europe to its Azure cloud service and makes it difficult for customers to switch to other providers. The complaint also argues that Microsoft's new contractual terms implemented on October 1st, along with other practices, damage the European cloud computing ecosystem. A Microsoft spokesperson commented on the complaint, saying the licensing changes we introduced this October give customers and cloud providers around the world even more options for running and offering our software in the cloud. This comes amid further antitrust concerns regarding the company's $69 billion bid for Call of Duty video game maker Activation Blizzard. The European Commission opened a probe into the acquisition on Tuesday, with a decision expected by March 2023. The EU Commission has fined Microsoft more than $1.6 billion over the last decade for antitrust violations.
0: Thank you, Melissa. Antitrust has provided us with an establishment-critical narrative. American big tech is harming EU consumers and businesses, and it's time the EU takes a stand. Microsoft is integrating its software deeper and deeper into its service and software portfolio, including Windows, making it almost impossible to compete. Meanwhile, other tech giants like Google and Amazon are doing the same thing. European consumers should have a free choice, and competition should be fair.
1: And here's the pro-establishment narrative from Americans for tax reform. Under the guise of promoting competition, the European Commission has launched a full-scale assault on American companies, and this recent antitrust case is just the latest example. This self-destructive strategy will only hurt Europe's consumers and tech industry, which won't be able to fill the void left once the EU successfully severs the once-friendly ties between American businesses and the European market.
0: And the metaculous prediction community have a nerd narrative on this story. There is a forty-seven percent chance that a major cloud service will fail to provide service for a period of at least eight hours before March 2023. Our final story today involves news out of COP 27 as China ponders a climate compensation mechanism. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, live mint. Reuters, and Gulf. Speaking at the COP27 climate conference in Egypt on Wednesday, China's climate envoy Xia Jinping said his nation would be willing to help create a mechanism to help poorer countries negatively impacted by climate change. However, he noted that China has no obligation to do so. Xi'a's statement comes after China said it would halt all climate dialogue with the U.S. in response to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan in August. This development occurred despite a U.S.-China deal at COP26 in Glasgow last year. A PRC delegation spokesperson later said that while Beijing is willing to cooperate with developing countries, they would not make a financial contribution with Jia adding that China has already given hundreds of millions of dollars for such mitigation efforts. U.S. Special Envoy John Kerry on Wednesday said China should support efforts financially, especially if Beijing plans on continuously increasing emissions. Xi'a called Kerry, quote, his friend of 25 years, but claimed he never raised the issue with him in private talks. Though Kerry admitted negotiations aren't currently working properly, White House advisor John Podesta added that he believes China should include methane reduction as part of its pledge. China defended its stance by citing the World Trade Organization's designation of China, the world's second-largest economy, as a developing nation, also noting the damage the PRC has suffered from extreme weather. Zia also argued that it's China, not the U.S., who is open to talks.
1: Thank you for the facts on that final story, Adam. The pro-China narrative comes from Global Times. Despite still being behind the U.S. and Europe in its economic evolution, China has already decreased its annual energy intensity and carbon emissions. With developed countries still failing to fulfill their decade-old promise to contribute $100 billion per year to mitigation efforts, it's only reasonable to ask them to step up before calling on China to do more.
0: And NewsBud is providing us with an anti-China narrative. As a nation supposedly in tune with global economic trends, China should be on board with the U.S. in its plan to protect poor countries facing climate-related disasters. The PRC should break down its barriers to dialogue and come to the table. Beijing is a massive emitter of greenhouse gases, but there are opportunities to discuss opportunities for global green energy investments to benefit all parties, too.
1: Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, November 10th, 2022.
0: Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ.
1: For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Melissa Topsher, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.